Amen. Thank you, Brad. Good morning. It's good to be with you. As Anson said, I'm Ben Beasley. I'm the senior high director over at Christ Church Crossroads. I'm in my third year as a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Before I was at Trinity and before I was here at Christ Church, I was at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. It's in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, if you've heard of it. I got my undergraduate degree in economics there. My younger sister, Mary, who's with us this morning, she actually followed in my footsteps there. She's a philosophy major, and I'll let you ask her after the sermon whether it's a good or a bad thing that my footprint's on that campus. You can ask her that. I won't tell you. (laughs) While I was at Taylor, I also played four years uh, of college soccer, so I was on the men's soccer team. And in our off-seasons, we did quite a bit of weight training. And our coach would bring, in, bring the team together for a team meeting, and he liked to describe what we were actually doing to our bodies when we went into the weight room. And he would say something to the effect of, when you go and you do bicep curls or you're doing back squats, you're tearing apart the muscle fibers in your muscles. You're breaking them down and actually tearing them apart. And then blood will rush in, it will heal them, it will repair them, and the muscle fibers will fuse back together stronger. And then two or three days later, you'll go back in and you'll do that same exercise and you'll tailor the muscle fibers apart and the blood will rush in and it will heal them and repair them. And then they'll fuse back together stronger. And so progressively, your muscles become stronger. And if everyone on our team is doing this, next season will be bigger, faster, stronger, and we'll be a better soccer team. We're going to return to that process of tearing down, healing and repairing and being strengthened later on in the message. But before we get into it, I'd like to take another moment to pray and dedicate the next 30 to 35 minutes to God. So bow your heads with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here be pleasing to you during this time. Speak to hearts, Lord. Lift the heads of those who are discouraged. Bring hope to those hearts that need it. Bring peace and rest to those who are stressed and anxious this morning. And Father, through your Son, by the power of your word, may we see your word, or by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we see your word in a new and refreshing way this morning. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we are in Luke 22, verses 31 through 34, and verses 54 through 62. And this happens after the Last Supper. So if you've been following along in Luke, at the Last Supper, Luke records Jesus as reclining with his disciples. I think that's a really beautiful picture. And Jesus also makes a number of different predictions. Towards the end of his life here, and towards the end of his public ministry, Jesus has started to make some large-scale predictions and some smaller, more immediate predictions, more than he did in his uh, previous kind of beginning of his ministry. So at the Last Supper, you know, he predicts that Judas would betray him. And he also prophesies his death and resurrection. That's a large-scale prophecy. He also talks about his father's kingdom. And the disciples didn't understand what he was saying, but they would later. He also instructed them in the taking of the bread and the drinking of the cup to do so in remembrance of him. So after the Last Supper... He makes another prediction, and this is to Simon, about Simon, and it's kind of sudden. 
a little abrupt. And we pick up in verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. And Simon replied, Lord, I will go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus says, before the end of the day, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. You will deny three times that you know me. I want to return to verse 31, and we'll start there. Simon, Simon, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. There's three parts to this verse that are important to highlight this morning. And the first part actually comes at the end of the verse. If you check it out, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. That you there, if you are reading an NIV translation, this might, your translation might catch this for you this morning. And your translation reads like this, Simon, Simon, Satan desires to sift all of you as wheat. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus is referring to all the disciples there. In the original language, that you is plural, and it could actually be translated as y'all, believe it or not. (laughs) Satan desires to sift y'all as wheat. (laughs) So Jesus is saying not only to Peter, but to all the disciples, hey, Satan's ask is for all of you. Peter, you're no different from the disciples. You're not separate from them. He wants to... He's asking for all of you. And then the second part is at the beginning of the verse. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked. Again, translations use different words for that asked there. Some say requested. Some say desires. The NASB, which many of you know, is more of a literal translation of the text, says demanded permission. And all of those really get at the heart of what Satan's asking here. And that is that he strongly desires to sift them as wheat. But what that also makes clear is that Satan has to ask God to do the work that he wants to do in the disciple's life. So what Satan does, the work that Satan does in the disciple's life is in part what he does himself, but also what God allows Satan to do. The work that Satan does in our lives is in part what Satan does himself, but in part what God allows Satan to do. Jesus is giving us a window into the very real spiritual war that is happening then and is happening now. And that leads me to my first point, is to stay aware of the spiritual war that is happening in you and around you. How many of you are aware that there is a spiritual war going on in you and around you? David Foster Wallace, a prolific writer, author, speaker, he once gave an address at Kenyon College. It was a commencement address. And it's famous now. It's known as the Like Water Speech. Some of you might have heard of it. And it begins with a short, pithy little parable. And he says this. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And then the two young fish, they keep swimming along and they look at each other and they say, one asks the other, what is water? Yeah, that's the most reaction. They're kind of like, what? Yeah, okay. 
Well, David Foster Wallace explains later on that the point of the fish parable is to illustrate that the most, in our day-to-day adult existence, the most important realities are often the hardest to see and to talk about. So just as the fish are unaware that they're swimming in water, we often find it hard to see and to talk about the spiritual battleground in which we live and move. Jesus, again, is giving us a window into the spiritual war that's happening. And we see it. We, we know that there's sin out there. We see it, you know, in poverty, in hunger, in corruption, death, disease. Some of your lives have been touched by those things. The spiritual war is also happening in you. It's being waged in your thoughts, your affections, your decision-making, your soul. How aware are you that the spirit, of the spiritual war that's happening in you and around you? So that's my first point. Stay aware. Stay aware of it. Some of you might ask, well, Ben, you just admitted that it's hard. So how, how do I stay aware of the spiritual war? And my answer to you would be this through a meaningful, prioritized, loving relationship with Jesus. It's in relationship with Jesus, the person who is truth, capital T, truth. Truth isn't just a doctrine, it's a person, right? It's in relationship with the person who is truth that we learn to see the world and ourselves truthfully, rightly. So stay aware of the spiritual war that's happening in you And around you, and do so through a loving, prioritized, it's important to you, a relationship with Jesus. All right, on to the third part of verse 31. And I promise we won't pick apart every verse like this. Um, That's a lot. But the third part of this verse that's important to highlight is the word that I was immediately attracted to when I began my study of this passage. And that's the verb to sift. Simon, Simon, Satan desires to sift you. As wheat. So Jesus didn't use a David Foster Wallace fish parable to describe the spiritual war to Simon. He uses a farming analogy. And I grew up in Akron, Ohio. I went to school at Taylor University, but I still don't know anything about farming. But the sifting process is the process of taking raw wheat, which has a lot of different stuff in it, and separating it from the kernel or the seed, which is what you're really after. So it's the process of separating the chaff and the other stuff from that kernel, which is what you really want. And that, in the biblical times, they had a lot of different ways of uh, sifting. But that process to sift is to shake up, to stir up, to churn, to break apart, to separate. So Jesus is saying to Simon and all the disciples, Satan wants to shake you up, stir you up, tear you apart. It's a sobering thought. And if Jesus would have stopped there, and that's where our passage ended today, then I wouldn't take much comfort or consolation in that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Do you hear the compassion in that? There's no condemnation there. 
Jesus is high priest. He's intercessor. He's praying for Simon. He's praying for us now. I'm reminded of the words of Paul in Romans 8. For Christ who died, but more than that was raised, was raised to life, is seated at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And Jesus, as he intercedes for us as the body of Christ, us communally, he also has you in mind. If we look at this verse, this you here, I pointed out the you, which is plural in verse 31. The you in verse 32, Simon, I pray that your faith may not fail, but I have prayed for you, Simon. That you, that you is singular. I have prayed for you, Simon. That's my second point, is through your sifting, Jesus is praying for you. May that be of encouragement to you. He's near. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And he's praying for you. Jesus not only predicts Peter's sifting, but he also prophesies his return and his repentance and that he would come back and strengthen his brothers. We see that in the rest of verse 32. So Jesus is not only high priest, he's also prophet. Verse 33 and 34. But he replied, Simon, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny, me three, you will deny three times that you know me. So even after all of that, Peter didn't believe Jesus. And this verse illustrates for us, it draws out Peter's overconfidence. Peter had spent the greater part of three years with Jesus. He had listened to Jesus' teaching. He had seen miracles and healings. He had been with him. He'd eaten with him. He'd probably laughed with him, right? Peter was a doer, too. Peter was always the one quick to act. He was eager to prove himself as the model disciple. He wanted to be seen, uh, seen as or give the appearance of being a model disciple. Again, verses 30, this, this verse, 33 and 34, show us his overconfidence. So we shouldn't really be surprised with what happens in verses 54 through 62. We can read those now. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire... In the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him, seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. It's like he dismissed her. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you were not also one of them. You also are one of them. Peter, a little bit more on edge this time, he replies, man, I am not. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. We can tell by your accent, of course you were with him. And Peter, out of frustration, anxiety, fear, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. 
And he went outside and wept bitterly. Each of the four Gospels include this story of Peter denying Christ. And if you're familiar with each different account, you'll notice the differences between them. In Mark, the Gospel author records that the rooster will crow twice after the third denial of Christ. And also, the Gospel writers disagree with the identity of the second and third questioners. So, for example, the second questioner in Mark is the servant girl that asks the first question. And in Matthew, it's another girl. In John, it's an anonymous person. And in Luke here, it says someone else, but the inference being a man. So what are we to do with those differences? Some skeptics use this as fuel for their criticism and their skepticism. But the differences can be reconciled. And I want to encourage you in that this morning. And if that's something that interests you, I want to point you in the right direction. Because I'm not going to spend time on that this morning. But there's an article, and it's really accessible. It's on the Gospel Coalition website. And it's by Craig Blomberg. He's a professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary. And he does a great job breaking this down for us, helping us understand how the text can be reconciled. So avail yourself of that. But there's another argument for uh, these, these stories. And this, this perspective believes that the simple fact that this story is included in all the Gospels testifies to their authenticity. And why is that the case? Well, imagine if the Gospel writers contrived the story of Jesus' resurrection, and then they wrote the Gospels to further their own agenda, then two things about the Gospels wouldn't make sense. And the first is, if the Gospel writers were a group of men who were trying to keep this made-up story alive, then there would be no reason that there should be differences between their accounts. If they colluded together to come up with this, There would be no reason for the differences. That's just bad storytelling. And secondly, Peter would have been one of those men in that group. And we know Peter as one of the champions of the faith early on, one of the highly regarded church fathers. It wouldn't make sense for Peter to include a story in the Gospels that paints himself in such a negative light, especially if he's contriving this. So if the Gospels were written to further the agenda of the disciples, then the puzzle pieces don't really fit together. The simple fact that this story is included in the Gospels testifies to their authenticity, and also that that it's included in all four Gospels shows that it's significant. It's important for us to take a close look at it. So let's return to verses 60 through 62. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I can only imagine the look that Jesus gave him. Peter denies him for the third time. The Lord looks straight at him. 
hurt, disappointment, a shattered relationship. And Peter wept. He wept. Here's the question. Did Peter weep because he hurt someone that he loved? Or did he weep because he lost the image of being a model disciple? Both look like weeping. My first year at Trinity was a tough one. I went out to, after I graduated from Taylor, I went out to Tacoma, Washington for a ministry training school out there. And after the summer, I moved out here to Chicago to start my studies at Trinity. And I was lonely. I didn't have a community around me. I had discerned the call of God on my life and was just trying to follow that. I was intimidated by Trinity, by my graduate studies, and everyone over there, comparing myself to them, seemed way more equipped for a life in ministry. I was depressed. And throughout my first two semesters, I allowed myself to make some mistakes, some moral failure. And at the end of my second semester, I confessed those things to Trinity. And before the Lord opened my eyes, I remember I was driving back to the place I was staying at the time. And I went up to my room and I opened a book. It was Henri Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal Son. And as I read, he begins to flesh out this idea of our perceived self, who we think we are, and who we actually are, and how distance can grow between the two. And immediately... I realized I had become way more concerned about the image and the appearance of being a model disciple. And I had let distance grow between that, who I really was, and I had lost way, my way. I wasn't following the way of Christ and the way of grace. And I wept. I, I wept. And I wept because I had hurt someone that I loved. I had grieved God. And that was a knife that struck deeply in me. But I also wept because I knew I no longer had this image of being a model disciple or a young seminarian in that way. I was now the young seminarian, the young man, the future pastor who had failed, who had made a mistake, and now was in need of to receive forgiveness and grace. And Peter, when he's in the garden, he's no longer this model disciple, or when he's weeping, he's no longer this model disciple. And I'm sure he was embarrassed. Who's going to follow me now? I look like an idiot. He's a man who made a mistake, who has to admit that, And receive forgiveness and grace. All of us here, man, woman, husband, wife, businessman, pastor, we don't like to be in the place where we have to admit we made a mistake or we failed and then receive forgiveness and grace. We often just want to make it work, keep up the appearance. 
this story isn't just about failure. And if that's all you've gotten from this message, then you've missed it. This story is an invitation from Jesus to receive grace. Jesus already knows how you will fail him. He knew Peter was going to fail him. And Jesus prays for you just as he was praying for Peter with love and compassion. And in your sifting, when you are torn apart, when you're broken down, when you're being that kernel of truth is being brought out from within you and all the other stuff is being separated from that. When you're being turned inside out, you find yourself broken down and in need of forgiveness and grace. But we all have a choice. We can choose to just keep making it work and choose the appearance where we can humble ourselves We can admit our failure and we can receive forgiveness and grace. And I have this picture of Jesus coming to you in your time when you are being sifted or when you're weeping and you're broken down and you're torn apart and you choose to humble yourself and repent. And his blood washes over you. And it heals you. And it repairs you. And you're strengthened from it. And then without concern for appearance, you can go strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ who so need a taste of that same grace and forgiveness. In Matthew... Jesus goes and he preaches on the Sermon on the Mount. And his first words of the Sermon on the Mount, which is this highly regarded new kingdom ethic, his first words are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are destitute in spirit, who are humble, who realize their need for me. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This morning, if you've just been making it work for a while, and that's become a heavy burden on your shoulders, then I invite you, and Jesus invites you, to receive grace. And it comes with brokenness. It comes with repentance. But it also comes with healing and repair. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word your gracious love, if we would humble ourselves and we would be able to be repaired, you will repair us by your love, by the blood that you shed on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you are praying for us. Father, I ask that you touch lives with your love this morning. Through your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict hearts, Speak to hearts, encourage them, bring healing, repair them, 
And as a body, we may, may we be able to strengthen each other. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.